Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then Job. Hear now God's word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did, continually. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. People at all ages ask the question, why? If you have a little one in your house, why is it raining yet again? Why do I have to go to bed? Or teenagers, why do I have to mow the lawn? That's on my mind today. Adults, when we suffer, why am I suffering? Why did this tragedy happen? Why this unspeakable pain? When we read the book of Job, we realize we're living in a fallen world full of suffering. Our bodies suffer. Our souls suffer. And the question why is often on our minds. It might be the shattering news of terminal cancer. It might be the devastating loss of a job or finances. It might be the death of a loved one. It might be a child that has gone wayward. It might be enduring persecution ridicule, suffering for naming the name of Jesus. It might be a thousand things. Why the pain in this marriage? Why this bitterness of heart? Why didn't things go the way I hoped they would go? And as we read the book of Job, these will be some things we look at. We are reminded at the beginning of Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children. That's like a theological no trespassing sign. Because the answer to the question, why is this happening, is we aren't told. Job wasn't told. And when we suffer unexpectedly and when we suffer deeply, we are reminded that our comfort comes not in the why question being answered, but in the God of Job who is there with us in the midst of our sorrow. As we go forward in the book of Job then, even though we don't know what God might be doing in his secret providence and hidden decree, we do know God himself. That's where comfort comes. Because this book is primarily about God, the judge of all the earth, whose purposes, yes, are hidden from us 
until we enter into glory, but the God who will always do what is right. Today, we're going to switch around the outline. We'll start with point two, who is Job? And we want to think about this question as we go forward in this series. Where are God's covenant promises being fulfilled in the midst of suffering for his people? I'll be using a number of resources throughout this study. This book is massive. I'm going to list some of them. I'll be quoting them throughout. Christopher Ashe and Derek Thomas. Some might be known to you, some might not. Howell Jones has a great commentary on this. David Strain and Meredith Klein. Steve Lawson. These are some of the faithful brothers that I'm going to be gleaning insight from as we go forward. First, who is Job? Job is a real man. This is real history. He really lived in a place that is called us. Now, there's a lot about Job we don't know. This is perhaps the oldest book of the Bible, maybe the first book of the Bible written. We don't know the author. Was it written by a man around the time of Moses? After Moses, during the time of Solomon or the exile? No one knows for sure. Was it passed down orally? and then written down. We do know it's in God's word. And we do know a little bit about potentially where us was. Remember, as we read the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's huge whenever you open your Bibles, especially in a book like Job. In the Old Testament, place names were derived from the names of people. So it's possible, we don't want to be sure because we can't be, that Uz was associated with a nephew of Abraham who had that name, Genesis 22. Uz had a brother, kids, named Buzz. I love that. Uz and Buzz. Very creative names. They settled in Edom. Esau is associated with Edom. In Genesis 36, there's a relative of Esau named Uz in Edom. Jeremiah and Lamentations mention Edom in association with also the name Uz. So this is possibly the land east of the promised land, what is now the nation of Jordan, what was then called Edom. It could also be Syria, modern-day Iraq. This is the area he's from. When did he live? Perhaps before the time of Abraham. Perhaps in the days of Genesis 1 to 11, those early days. Or perhaps he was a contemporary of Abraham. He lived over 140 years. We learn that from the end of the book. And as you read the book, you'll see a remarkable lack of hardly anything related to Israel. There's no mention of Abraham here. There's not a mention of Exodus or slavery in Egypt. Job himself was not an Israelite. His name is not a Hebrew name. There are no tribal or family identifications given with him. We don't know his genealogy. We don't know where he came from. But we do know he probably lived in a polyistic environment in Edom. We do know from early in the book of Genesis that revelation was given of the gospel to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.15. That one of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God's grace was promised there. So there was revelation of the law and the gospel right in the days following Adam and Eve. And that would have been passed down to people like Seth and Enoch, who were of the seed of the woman, 
It also would have been passed down to people like Cain and those who rebelled against God. You read of those other accounts of things like creation and the flood and other false gods. That's perhaps what that came from, the line of Cain and the power of evil and wickedness. And yet Job clearly knows and worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't know really how this happened other than what God promised in Genesis. He will preserve a people for himself, a remnant for himself, even in the midst of dark, disobedient days right after the fall of Adam and Eve. The first verse tells us about Job. He was blameless. What a remarkable thing to say. In some ways, Job is all that Israel was supposed to be. Blameless, much like Noah and Abraham. This does not mean sinless. Rather, it means he was on the outside what he is on the inside. Not double-faced or or double-minded. Not a hypocrite. But this man truly walked in holiness before God. You see that throughout the book. He values God's word. He confesses sins of immorality and idolatry, and he asks God to to protect his heart from evil, and he repents before the Lord. He enjoys communing with God. The first verse also says he was upright. Kids, what's the opposite of being upright? Kind of hunched over, bent, twisted. This is referring to to the way he treated other people. Sin has twisted us. So by nature, we're turned in on ourselves rather than upward to God in faith and outward to our neighbor in love. We're turned in. But Job, by God's grace, acted to other people the way he treated the people in his own family. He defended those as a judge who were vulnerable. He loved his enemies He prayed for those who persecuted him. We read that in chapters 31 and 29. He treated his servants who worked for him justly and fairly. Verse 1 also says he feared the Lord. We read in the Proverbs as well that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Job 28, 28 says the same thing. Now, fear, that's a word that whether you lived in the days of Job or today rings true in our hearts, doesn't it? Kids, what do we fear? Maybe, children, some of you fear the day of school when you begin in the fall. Maybe you're in a new school or a new class and you have a new teacher and you don't know anyone. There can be a hesitancy, a fear. Perhaps we fear disease. Perhaps we fear economic collapse. We fear death itself. But what the Bible says for the child of God, if we fear the Lord, then we really don't need to fear any of those things. We struggle there. But the fear of the Lord banishes those fears from us. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is not God's got his finger on the trigger ready to mow you down. God is for you in Jesus All of your sins have been paid for by the work of Christ on the cross. So the fear of the Lord is a a trust in God, a love for God, a reverence for God, a delight in God. 
We know so much more of that than Job did, and yet by God's grace, Job had a fear of the Lord. It says here that Job not only feared the Lord, but turned away from evil. What would be the opposite of the fear of the Lord that would be evil? Have you thought of that? So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what would be the flip side of that? Something that we all struggle with, the fear of man. The Proverbs say, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Ed Welch wrote a great book about this. When people are big and God is small. When you truly fear God and turn away from evil, you will love people. But when you fear people, and when I fear people, then you're not loving God or them. When you fear people, you think, well, what are they thinking of me? And then you start to think that you know what they're thinking of you. And then you start to make decisions based on what you think that you know that they're thinking of you. It's a spiral. That's why the Proverbs say it's a snare. When we truly fear God, we don't fear anything else. We turn away from evil because we know that that evil lurks in our hearts. Job knew it as well. So what is this in the New Testament, turning away from evil? Repentance and faith. The seed promise of the covenant of grace is there. God is bringing Job to repent of his sin, to love the Lord, and to turn away from evil. And this impacts how Job treats his family. If you look at verse 2, Job has ten children, seven sons and three daughters. The numbers seven and ten signify completeness. How old was Job? Was he, as some people think, in the prime of life? Was he in his 40s? Did he have unmarried children, married children? We're not sure all of those things, but we are told he's very successful. He's a farmer with kids. Do you see how many sheep? 7,000. We have trouble sometimes keeping track of our one dog. The dog sometimes gets out, and we don't realize it for a while, and the dog's down the, the block running away. <laughs> 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels. Why would we have camels, kids? Because he did not have a Toyota pickup truck. He had to get around the desert. Camels would be used for transportation. And that's a very prestigious animal, the camel, even though they spit. That's another story. He has 500 yoke or pairs of oxen, so that's to plow the land. 500 female donkeys, so you need milk and you need animals for breeding. And who's going to do all this work? Who's going to take care of all these animals? Well, it says he has servants. Very possibly, he lived in a city. Job mentions later on that he's prominent in the gates of the city. So he has servants in a farm outside the city, and they're taking care of these animals. He has great wealth. He's the greatest among the people of the east, meaning east of the promised land. He has a stellar reputation. He is in some ways what Adam was to be on a global level. He's rich, he's powerful, and you're thinking at this point, the health and wealth gospel might be true. It's not. But at this point, he's got the American dream. 
And all his kids like being together. That's rare. You know that. Your kids enjoy getting together for a family meal and they don't pick pick at each other and snark at each other and poke each other. That's rare when you're in your 30s. (laughs) They get together here for birthdays. That's kind of the picture. Or some sort of a feast. His sons might be princes in the land. And as they're gathering, these type of feasts would be religious festivals. These were not pagan children. This was not drunken immorality and debauchery. These were believers in the one true God. They worshiped God. They got together to give thanks to God. And Job himself had a deep spiritual care for his children as a father. He's not the kind of father who's really successful at work and completely distant and disastrous at home. He loves his children. As I was thinking about this this week, I had something come across my own heart. What is easier for me during the day when the kids are around? To get angry and impatient with them and frustrated with them or to stop and talk to them speak gently to them and pray for them and with them. It's much easier, isn't it, to to just kind of say something harsh because you're mad at whatever they've done that can disturb my peace. Here's one impulse, loved ones, never to deny and never to push aside. The impulse to pray. If you have that impulse during the day, whenever it is, that's the Holy Spirit. Don't turn that impulse into a denial. Job himself would rise early in the morning. He got up and he offered sacrifices for the children, which is a remarkable thing because he's saying here in verse 5, it might be that my children have cursed God. So he's realizing in the midst of these celebrations and parties, have my children set God aside? Have they renounced the Lord? Have they denied Christ, the Savior to come? We love our children, but God loves them more than we do. We can't save our kids. We can pray for them. We can love them. We can point them to Jesus, but only God can save them. During the days of Job, there are no priests. This is interesting, isn't it? No temple. No sacrificial system in the same way as it would be later in the days of Moses. But what is Job doing? He's offering a whole burnt offering. The entire animal's consumed. So for Sally, he gets up. He offers the the animal. The lamb is probably making noises. The blood is all over the place. And Sally sees that that's what she deserves for her sin. To be cursed and judged by a holy God. And Job Job does the same for Willie and for Joe and for Ruth and for Bill and for Molly and for Mary. He does the same for all ten of them. The picture is one after another. What's he doing here? As one pastor says, he's preaching the gospel to them. He's reminding them that life is not about partying and prestige Life is not about riches and earthly success, but it's about a need for pardon and cleansing of sin and a perfect righteousness to stand before a holy God. He's teaching them the gospel of Jesus. 
And here's the irony. As Job is offering those sacrifices, these sacrifices are a picture of the one whose suffering would be greater than Job's suffering. Because as the book goes on, Job's entire life is about to become undone. As this book continues, he will lose his possessions and his job, his children and his family, his health itself. It's about to crash. And yet there's gospel hope here. Secondly, what does the book of Job teaching us? John Calvin preached over 150 sermons on Job, 1554. A man named Joseph Carroll, a Puritan, preached perhaps 400 or more sermons over 20 years. That's a lot. So think about that, kids. You could be born and baptized and live your life and go off to college and then come back to that church, and he's still in Job, (laughs) and he never left Job. I'm sure he preached other things, but we're not going to do that. I want to tell you up front, we're not going to go through every chapter of every book in Job. Some have done that. We're probably going to spend maybe 12 sermons here. We'll see as we go. We'll adjust as we go. So because of that, we need to know a big picture overview because 42 chapters, it's easy to get lost in the details and to wonder what's going on here. Here's Meredith Klein and Todd Bordeaux. They help us summarize this. The first thing to learn about Job after this introduction is the redemptive history of this context. Who is about to appear in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9? Satan. The last time Satan has appeared in the Bible is Genesis 3. The only other time in the Old Testament that Satan appears like this, in this kind of detail, is Zechariah 3. What's happening? Well, Satan is coming and kind of boasting before God. He's saying, those promises, God, that you made in Genesis 3, that you will preserve a people for yourself and you will send a Messiah from those people and you will fulfill your promises of grace, God, they're dead. There's no one left, God. I own things. This world is mine. I'm in charge. I've got champions, and that's what we see going forth. So Satan is saying, I'm basically going to curse God, and I'm going to curse everyone who attempts to believe in God, and I'm going to take over. Now, verse 9 of chapter 1 gives you the summary of much of the book. Satan is saying to God, this Job guy that you, God, say is yours, that you say belongs to you, he only fears you, the fear of the Lord, because you give him stuff. God, if you take away his health, his wealth, the blessings you've given to him spiritually, if those aren't his anymore, he's going to curse you. He really doesn't love you, God. In fact, he's just in it for what he gets out of it. Does Job love God for who God is? For God himself. That's the focus here. God himself is saying, I'm going to show Satan that I do have a people for myself that Job is one of the seed of the woman, that I myself will not go back on my promises. 
There's another important thing of redemptive history to look at. This is happening at a unique time in history. We read the Bible in each book of the Bible in the context in which it's given. So Christian, this is not you today in the same way. Here's what I mean. God brings Job to the attention of Satan. The ordeal is about to unfold, and it's unique. One reason it's unique is Job lived before the cross of Jesus. Jesus has defeated the powers of evil, including Satan himself. Satan has been bound. He has been cast down. The powers of darkness have been disarmed, Colossians 2. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. Satan is not yet destroyed, but defeated. So Satan has no access to the throne of God to accuse you before God about your circumstances. We live at a different time in redemptive history. And what's going on in this time is conflict. This is a literary technique that unites the book. As you read the book, you'll see most of it is poetry. 39 of the 42 chapters are poetic. It's a disputation. And the conflict is between God and Job uh, and Satan. Whose word is true here? God's word or Satan's word? When Job loses everything, we can't even comprehend it. All of us have suffered to various degrees. Some have perhaps suffered like this in one day, maybe. But even this is unique in some ways. Whenever, however, we hear of someone suffering, it's important to remember that we should put ourselves in their place, as it were. That we should weep with those who weep. That we ought not point the finger. Job's wife is Satan's first champion. After Job loses all of these things, she tells him to curse God and to die. In Job 3, there's great sorrow. Job wishes he was never born. And from chapters 3 to 37, Job and his friends are going to debate the question that Job has. Why am I still alive? I should have never been born. And over and over again, we will hear from Satan's Next three champions, not only Job's wife, but Job's three miserable comforters, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. For the first seven days, we will see that they say nothing. They're sitting in stony silence. Even then, they're not comforting him. They are looking at him as a corpse that's ready to be thrown into a coffin. And what do they say when they speak? Well, as Meredith Klein says, They basically say four things. First, God is sovereign, just, holy, and true. And that's correct. Second, man is punished for sin and rewarded for righteousness. Think about that. Is that true? They teach that this happens in this life. This is the legalistic view of life that many of us are, are hard, hard, we're all hardwired for, actually. So if you're blessed outwardly, that means God is happy with you. If you're suffering, God must be angry with you, and then God must be punishing you because of your sin. 
They also say, third, we aren't suffering, Job's friends, so Job, we're more righteous than you. And then fourth, Job, you must repent to be blessed, and then suffering will leave you. This is going on from chapters 3 through the 30s. And as Christopher Ashe says, these guys are like Julie Andrews from The Sound of Music. The captain falls in love with her. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's the theology of Job's counselors. There's no grace in their theology. It's all law. They're the Pharisees of the Old Testament. And if Job believes what they say, he will be filled with entire total despair. As the book goes on, Job says, you guys are hypocrites. You just talk. It's all a charade. I'm not being punished for some secret sin. In the depths of his agony, Job still could say, I know that my Redeemer lives, chapter 19. And as you look at how the rest of the Bible treats Job, that's so important as you read this, Ezekiel 14 talks of Job along with Noah and Daniel as men of righteousness. How is Job righteous? How is Noah righteous? Hebrews 11 tells us, doesn't it, about Noah. It says that Noah trusted by faith in the righteousness that comes, not from himself, but where? From the Lord Jesus, ultimately. So the righteousness of Job, like Abraham, like Noah, like everyone who believed in the Old Testament, was not their own. It was the righteousness of the Savior to come that they trusted in. As Job trusts in the Savior to come, he's patient, but he's not perfect. He's not being punished for his sin. He's not suffering because of his sin. But what happens as he suffers? This is a key point. He sins in his suffering. And so it is often with us. Yes, sometimes there's a one-to-one correspondence between sin and suffering. If someone's a drunk or they commit immoralities, there may be something that happens directly as a result of that, yes. But that's not the case with Job. And that's not how God operates. Remember the man born blind? Who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it this guy or his parents? No. It wasn't his sin in his childhood. It wasn't his parents' sin back before he was born that caused him to be born blind. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him, John 9. But as he suffers, Job is perplexed. He says some things he shouldn't say. And who among us can say we haven't done the same? All of us. He says at one point in chapter 9, God is unjust. He makes demands of God. He challenges God. And at that point, God brings another champion to challenge Job. Elihu, who makes four speeches. All of them are unjust dealt with afterwards, and in some ways Elihu, who's not perfect, but as a younger man, is speaking for God. I gave you the view of Elihu that I have even before we get there. I want us to know kind of where we're going. In Job 38, a storm is brewing. 
The glory of God comes in the form of a storm. And God speaks to Job. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, did you create the honey badger? Job, crocodiles are scary, kids, aren't they? We saw one on our trip. I'm not going to run up to a crocodile and jump on the back and go for a ride. You're going to run away from a crocodile. Job, if there are some of my creatures that you're afraid of, how much more should you have a right fear of me? Job, you're a sinner. Only grace can save you. And then in Job 42, what happens? While he is still suffering, Job repents. As you read this book, you will see that God never tells Job why he's suffering. What do we learn theologically about suffering from this book? Some say this is dealing with theodicy. What is that? How can a good God allow evil and suffering among his creatures? To solve that, some people say, well, God's not all-powerful. That's not true. Others say God's not good. Islam, think of that. That's not true. Others say if you suffer, it's because you've done something wrong. That's Job's wife and that's Job's friends. That's not true. What's going on here with Job? The question is why do the righteous suffer? That's the foundational question below the question of the problem of evil. Job is not the health and wealth and prosperity gospel of America. That is a false gospel. That is not at all what Job teaches. So Job says it's not always the case that godliness produces prosperity or that poverty is the proof of sin. The book of Job also shows us who is behind Job's sufferings. Yes, Satan is involved, as we will see next week, Lord willing. But God brings up the possibility of Job's temptation to Satan. And Satan is not equal with God. It's not like Satan and God are up there as two gods kind of battling it out in a cosmic game of boxing. As Calvin says, God holds the key. Luther said the devil is God's devil. Satan does things only by the permission of God. God is in control of all of this. So the question even beyond why do the righteous suffer is this. Why does God ordain that the righteous suffer? Remember, this book is primarily about God. Behind all of Job's suffering lies the hand of God. God ordains everything that comes to pass, trials and sin. But God is not the author of sin. God does not tempt us to sin. God does not condone sin. When we come full circle to the end of the book, what do we see? Job is not given an answer to the question, why? He's given a glimpse of the majesty of God. There's nothing better than to see the majesty of Almighty God. Why do we study the book? Because if we have a fair-weather Christianity, as David Strain says, if our Christianity only lives in the sunshine when things are going well, it is no true Christianity at all. What will happen when the storm hits? 
for many of you, the storm has hit. You're in the storm. The storm has hit your entire life. For others, perhaps small storms have hit. But wherever you are, whatever stage of life you're in, however secure and healthy and prosperous you think you are, there is a storm coming. Job is like a scriptural weather alert telling you the time to get ready for the tornado is not when the tornado is on your house. It's when you know the tornado is headed that way. It's preparation for when suffering comes. That's what Job's godliness is. It's not an inoculation against suffering. And it's not putting God in our debt. This pastor also says this. We'll sing Romans 11 in a little bit. It quotes, Paul does, Job 41. Who has ever given to God that it should be repaid him? Christianity is not, okay, God, I'm doing all this stuff for you. I'm serving you. I'm pouring out my heart for you. I'm denying myself, taking up my cross and following you. Now you give me stuff. Now you bless me with health and wealth and prosperity. God, you owe me. Job says, not at all. It's not that you do this for God and he gives you earthly prosperity. We learn from Job how to respond to suffering. When we suffer an accident, a sickness, a trial, what are we often tempted to do? To look back and to think, if I only had not done that, this wouldn't have happened. If only I had known now what I, know then what I know now, Woulda, coulda, shoulda. That's how we're often tempted to think of suffering. And Job teaches us not to do that. Don't look back in regret. Look forward to a time when the wisdom and purposes of God will be revealed. We don't lose heart because this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's how the New Testament teaches us to read Job. Do you know that James 5 brings up Job? James mentions the prophets, and then Job comes up. Was Job among the prophets? Did Job speak God's word to us? Can we, as well as others before us, learn from Job? The answer is yes. James brings Job up in chapter 5, to new covenant Christians who are waiting for the return of the Lord in the midst of affliction. That's us. And James says, you can remember from Job, endurance, steadfastness, patience, perseverance. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, James says. Don't grumble against each other. That's what we're tempted to do. In a church, in a family, among friends, we're tempted to turn inward and grumble and bite and devour each other. No, James says, as an example of patience and suffering, remember the prophets who spoke in God's name and consider the steadfastness of Job. Job is a prophet who speaks to us today in the face of our suffering. Job trusted in God's promises. He believed that God is full of compassion and mercy. 
He believed that God would bring about everything he had said he would bring. Job is about the perseverance of the saints. One person says, Job on the ash heap in us, in or before the days of Abraham, finds a counterpart in John on the island of Patmos as he receives the vision of the book of Revelation. Where do we find comfort here? Job is referred to as my servant six times. Job is a type of the suffering servant. Job suffered not for sins he had done. In that, he points us to Jesus, the suffering servant who suffers not for his sins but for ours, who takes all of our sin and guilt and laziness, our lack of love, our self-righteousness, our pride. Jesus, the suffering servant, came not to be served but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. And in Christ, we are set free from the dominion of sin and death so that you are blameless now, not because of yourself, but by faith in Jesus. You are adopted as a fellow heir in Christ. So how do you weather storms and agony? Not by toughing it out. Not by saying, I've got the money, the strength, the ability to do this. We weather storms and trials as we put our confidence not in ourselves but in Jesus. As we realize how weak and frail and sinful we are. And the faith you have in Christ is supernatural. God holds on to you. It's not the power of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus. Because your life, like Job's and like our Savior's, is a life of suffering now, glory in the age to come. And when you read the end of Job, which I would encourage you this week to do, read through all of it, you'll see the epilogue and the prologue go together. At the end of his life, Job receives double the blessings, double the sheep, double the camels. The children are back. Is the health, wealth, gospel right? No. The end of Job reminds us of the blessings we receive in the new heavens and new earth. The blessing Job receives at the end of his life reminds us of the Psalms that talk of heaven as a double return for your sufferings. Dear Christian, Emmaus Road Reformed Church, be patient until the coming of the Lord. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, and we will see that, Lord willing, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, as Paul says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. These light, momentary afflictions, God, they don't feel light right now. But your words say they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, Father, help us not to look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, oh God, are eternal.
Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. In Christ's name, amen.